This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're beginning chapter 21. If you're familiar with the church calendar, the Sunday before Easter is called Palm Sunday, named for the palm branches waved in praise and placed as an ancient form of red carpet before Jesus. On that day, Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem to shouts of worship and honor, and just a few days later, those same people called for his crucifixion. There are lessons to be learned here from the donkey, the disciples, and from the people who were devoted followers of Jesus until he failed to overthrow the Romans. And the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy should encourage us to trust in the future God predicts in his word. Let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Follow along with me. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, or Bethphage, however you want to pronounce it, tomatoes, tomatoes, at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought them the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, singing, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So here, church, this uh, scene, Palm Sunday, we know this as Palm Sunday. This scene describes to us Jesus as a gentle monarch. Keep that in mind. That is so significant because, again, the context, two chapters before, Jesus is talking about greatness in the kingdom, and he comes in as a gentle monarch. So in order for us to understand Jesus' unique calling, let's unpack this scene. I have four observations to make, and then we'll be done. First, I want to point out to you the presentation of the humble king, verses 1 through 3. By this time, the Jewish leaders already wanted to kill Jesus, but they hesitated to pursue their plan during Passover week. Mark clarifies why for us here when he writes in Mark 14, verse 2, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. So they were furious with Jesus Christ because of his claims of being the Messiah, and they were losing followers, and now they wanted to kill Jesus, but they said not during Passover. So Jesus Christ, in his infinite wisdom, timed this triumphal entry to occur during Passover week. Don't miss that. The reason for that is not only to aggravate the jealousy of the Jews, which we already know will reach the boiling point, which would result in the crucifixion, but also because this is the time of the year that the Jews chose a Passover lamb for the festival. 
So the connection is very clear. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world according to John 1 verse 29. And according to Paul, Christ is our Passover who has been sacrificed, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. So don't miss the connection between Passover week and Jesus' triumphal entry in Jerusalem. But also don't miss the fact that there is a visual connection with the Passover lamb. Now, John wrote in Revelation 5, verse 6, the visual aid to that connection. He says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. So he's having the vision of Jesus crucified and resurrected and glorified now, and he sees a lamb standing. Now, of course, that's not what Jesus looks like now. This is a visual representation of his office of the sacrificial lamb. But listen, in verse 3, Jesus anticipates the objection from the owners of the animals. I mean, no one would peacefully surrender their property to two strangers. Jesus probably had followers in that place. They probably knew Jesus. And that's why Jesus says, well, tell them the Lord has need of them. So either that's a possibility or the other possibility clearly is that Christ in omniscience already determined that the people would not object to him using their property for, for ministry. He knew that the owners would not object either by divine sovereignty or by the fact that he knew them and they were supporters of the ministry of Christ. Now, clearly... We see that based on their response, the response of the people there. There is no record of any objection uh, of them surrendering the animals to be used for the ministry here. Clearly, they understood that God owns everything. That's the point for us to understand. And although this is not the point of the passage, this is a good lesson for us. God owns everything. He does have the right to commandeer things for the use of the ministry, for His own glory and His purpose, because He's the owner of everything. But again, the lesson for us and the question I want to ask us this morning is this, based on this particular portion of the scene. Do you, like them, understand that everything in your possession belongs to God alone for His glory and to be used for His glory? That includes your life, that includes your energy, your resources, your talents, everything. Do you understand that like these guys? How would you have responded if God says, I want to use your resources for my purposes, for my honor, for my glory. Would you hold on to them or would you say, Lord, this is yours anyway, go ahead. Use my life for your honor and for your glory. And again, although this is not the main point of the scene, here's another lesson for us to understand. The two unnamed disciples immediately obeyed Christ. We got to give them the credit. Because so far in the last couple of chapters, we've been bashing them. But that one thing they get right, they immediately obeyed Jesus Christ. Even though this was a, an unusual request, perhaps a, a strange one. And I want you to put yourself in their shoes, church. Has God ever asked you to do something you consider strange or perhaps uncomfortable? Fill in the blank, whatever that is. It's got to be from Scripture. Don't tell me that God is, you have a feeling that God is telling you to divorce your wife and marry someone else because that's not from Scripture. So something that you read in Scripture, for example, how about telling others about Jesus Christ? That's uncomfortable. Our flesh will cry out in protest and we'll tell God, no, God, I have so many other things to do. I have so many other priorities. How about involvement in your local church? Lord, are you kidding me? My Sundays? My only time to, to sleep in or whatever the case is? Something strange, perhaps uncomfortable. How do you respond when God comes to you very clearly through His Word and convicts you that He wants you to do something that your flesh will cry out against, that you will feel that is uncomfortable? 
I encourage all of us to follow the example of these two unnamed disciples because according to verse 6, we read that they did just as Jesus had instructed them. And maybe write a, a note in your Bible and say, that's a good thing to do. That's a good example to follow. Yes, sir, Jesus, whatever you want me to do. Notice another detail here. Jesus refers to himself as Lord. And the reason for that is he wants to remove all doubt concerning his identity and ministry. Now, no longer are we going to read that Jesus is telling people to not tell anybody else that he is the Messiah. Remember, we saw this a few times in the Gospel of Matthew here. He's saying, well, don't tell anybody yet. It's not time yet because they're going to want to come and try to coronate me. It's not the time. And church, the reason for that is because this is now the time. That's the day for him to enter Jerusalem to fulfill prophecy. Up until that time, he was telling people, don't tell anybody just yet. But now he refers to himself as Lord, leaving no doubt concerning his identity and his ministry. The time has arrived. In less than a week, he will offer his own life to secure reconciliation between sinners and their creator. And church, that's another reason why we see the picture of a donkey in this scene. It's because the donkey represents peace. If a king comes into town riding on a horse, on a stallion, the, the image is this is a conquering general that's coming. But Jesus coming, riding on a donkey, what he is communicating is, I come to bring peace. He is the prince of peace. Peace between God and man, not necessarily peace between Jerusalem and Rome. Which, by the way, is what most of the people were expecting him to do. Now, he's a gentle monarch, but this gentle monarch will one day return riding on a horse, according to Revelation 19, verse 11, as a conquering general to wage war. See, that's the point. Peace now, war later in his return. So in the first time he comes to Jerusalem, he comes offering peace to rescue and redeem sinners. Later on, when he comes in the second advent of Christ, and by the way, we come with him, those of us who are believers in Christ now, we will have been raptured before that time, and then we will come with him. But then he comes to rule and to reign and to wage war against his enemies. Now he offers for his enemies peace between you and God. And I am the intermediary of that peace, he says. And that is what this picture here represents, the presentation of the humble king. He is the king of kings. He is the king of the universe. There's not an inch in creation that doesn't surrender to the jurisdiction of Christ, even outside of creation. But he offers himself in a humble way, communicating to the disciples. That's what I've been talking about this whole time. So after the presentation of the humble king, the second observation I want to make is the prophecy about the humble king. Scripture tells us that this is the fulfillment of prophecy, verses 4 and 5. Matthew again starts to quote Old Testament here to us because again, his purpose, he's writing to a Jewish audience primarily. And he is quoting all of these Old Testament passages because he wants to say, you see, the entire book is about Christ. He wants his readers to know that the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9, verse 9. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, they had many kings. In fact, the Old Testament has at least six books that describe the monarchy, or at least the beginning of the monarchy, onwards until the captivity of that nation. And we have lists of names of all of these kings, but this prophecy here refers to your king. So obviously, when you're reading this, oh, which one? Which one are you talking about? Is it David? Solomon? Rehoboam? Hezekiah? Which one? 
But the prophecy is very clear. Your king is coming. Which one? The one who's coming mounted on a donkey. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, like the people says, the prophet king. See, every other king up until that point brought either financial stability, security, or curse. But this one is bringing salvation, something a lot more important than financial stability. Something a lot more important than national security. He is bringing salvation. He is offering peace between God and man. And I want you to know, church, that this gentle monarch that we're talking about here from the prophecy of Zechariah is not the king of Israel only. According to Zechariah 9.10, the very next verse, we read about this king that he will speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Again, indicating to us that Jesus Christ has jurisdiction over the entire universe. So even though Jesus is the king of Israel, he is the king of the universe and he wants the nations to hear that salvation is available and he brings peace and he brings salvation. He's endowed with salvation. In church, you and I have the indescribable privilege today of being the mouthpiece of God by communicating salvation in no other name than in this humble king who came to Jerusalem mounted on a donkey, the one who fulfills prophecy. But there's another prophecy about this day I want you to hear about. I need your full attention today because I don't want to complicate things. Okay, we're going to talk about numbers now. You ready for this? This prophecy is not mentioned in Matthew, but recorded in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 9, verses 1 through 3, the prophet in captivity writes this because he was concerned about God's redemptive plan for his people, Jerusalem, for, for the Jews. He says this, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Fast forward to verses 24 through 25. God answers him. And he dispatches an angel, Gabriel, to give the answer to Daniel. He says this, 70 weeks, 70 weeks have been decreed for you and for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah. He reads something about 70 years. And then the angel comes and gives him clarification. And he says, there have been 70 weeks of years determined for you. So these are weeks of years, periods of seven years, 70 of those. In other words, 490 years, according to the Jewish calendar. According to Nehemiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, Artaxerxes decreed the rebuilding of Jerusalem in 445 B.C. Now, I want you to know, Jesus' triumphal entry happened 69 weeks of years exactly to the day, according to the Jewish calendar, exactly to the day. But the angel Gabriel promised Daniel 70 weeks, 490 years, to bringing everlasting righteousness. So the obvious question is this, 
What happened to the remaining seven years? I am glad you asked, because we talked about that week when we covered the book of Revelation, did we not? It has been postponed until that time. Now, you and I, therefore, live in a parenthetical period of time between weeks number 69 and week number 70, weeks of years. Okay? And that parenthetical time is called the church age. It has been going on for more than 2,000 years now. Now, God will then rapture His church sometime in the future. It could be today. It could be a 100 years from now. We don't know. But what's going to happen is sometime right after that event, the Antichrist will sign a covenant with the people of Israel. That is in the book of Daniel, verses 26 through 27. The Antichrist will sign a covenant of peace with the people of Israel, only to break it in the middle of that seven years, the first three and a half years, we call that the tribulation and the great tribulation. But when the Antichrist signs that covenant with Israel, God's last week of redemptive history starts. And then Christ will return exactly seven years later after that. And that's the second event of Christ. And you and I are coming back with Him. Now, you're asking, why are we going over this? I'm glad you asked again. Because I want you to be completely confident in the Word of God. If you look at the Word of God and you research the harmony of Scripture, you will find that God never lies. That every prophecy that God promises will come true to the detail, not allegorically, but literally. So... If prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ happen exactly as they were promised to the date, every detail has been fulfilled concerning Jesus' triumphal entry in Jerusalem, for example, Palm Sunday. Every promise concerning his second coming will also happen exactly how they are promised. They follow the same pattern. More specifically, every promise that he made to you personally will come true to the very detail. So, we talked about the presentation of the humble king. We talked about the prophecy about him. And we added another one that Matthew doesn't mention here. But let me tell you about the procession of the humble king. Verses 6 through 8. There's a procession that takes place. Don't miss the solemnity of the event. The festivity. The ritual here. There's nothing wrong with ritual. If you don't idolize the ritual. So this is what we see here. Pilgrims from Galilee. Join the crowds from Jerusalem to greet Jesus on the road and start this royal procession. They, they, this is a custom for them. They knew what this was all about. And again, the other Gospels give us more details about this. The crowds then paid homage to Christ by laying their cloaks as if to roll out the red carpet. That's the idea. That's what they, they want to honor this man, Jesus Christ. So this was the modern equivalent of a red carpet. And by placing palm branches also on the road, same idea. This was a custom of the time. And by the way, the Bible is very clear about the image of palm branches that signified messianic hope, thankfulness, worship, and praise. And they're laying this in front of the, the procession here as if to say, we're rolling out the red carpet to you. Again, let's not miss the connection. The crowds recognize him as Messiah at this point, and they expect him to establish the kingdom. But most likely, they have in mind an overthrow of the occupying force. They will be disappointed, because less than a week later, they will be crying out, crucify him. We looked at the presentation of the humble king, the prophecy about him, his procession, and finally, the praise of the humble king, verses 9 through 11. Collective worship breaks out when they see Jesus Christ coming. And the crowds quoted from 
the Hallel Psalms, the Hallel Psalms. You are very familiar with this word already because we sing Hallelujah all the time. That means praise Yahweh. The Hallel Psalms are Psalms 113 through 118. So the crowds, as soon as they see this, they break out in praise, quoting from Scripture. Specifically, they are quoting Psalm 118, verses 25 to 26, which reads this. I want you to listen very carefully. O Lord, do save. We beseech you, O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So that's what the crowds were saying. They were quoting this psalm here because they do expect salvation from Messiah. Once again, the connection with the Jewish festival is unmistakable here. They're saying, just like you saved the Exodus, folks, save us now. In the time of the Exodus, God saved them from Pharaoh. But now they're saying, save us from Caesar. Many of them did not understand the spiritual implications of that. That Jesus came to conquer sin, not to conquer the occupying force, not to overthrow the government. And we know that because John, the gospel writer, points out that not even the disciples got it at this point. Listen to John 12, verse 16. At the first, they didn't understand, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So not even the disciples understood the spiritual aspect of salvation at this point. In church, I am afraid that many believers today, likewise, get all of these things confused. They confuse the political aspect of our lives with spiritual salvation. Jesus has not come to save us from the Biden administration. Did you know that? Or for the administration of any other president. In fact, he wants Joe Biden to be the president of the United States. Because otherwise, if God didn't want him there, he would not be there. And the other observation I must make is that Jesus can snap a divine finger and the government is overthrown. Book of Daniel talks about that. Ask Belshazzar. The writing on the wall guy. So we have a spiritual problem more than we have a political problem. Oh yes, we long for bad politicians and corrupt politicians to be removed from office. Thank God that we can vote them out. But let's not lose sight that according to Isaiah 9 verse 6, the government will rest upon his shoulders. In other words, Jesus has this whole thing figured out. It's all under his control. We should focus on the spiritual aspect of our salvation. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be involved in, in, in the city council and all that. We should be good stewards of those rights that we have, of course. But I wonder if we have that out of balance in our hearts from time to time. Now, the other synoptic gospels write more details about the shouts of praise of the people. I want to read them to you so we get the entire picture here. According to Matthew, the crowds chanted, Hosanna to the Son of David. According to Luke, they said, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And according to Mark, they said, Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David, that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now again, like I said earlier, sadly, some of these lips that are uttering the utmost praise to God, words from the Bible, Christianese, in less than a week, they'll be crying, crucify him. Why? Because things did not happen according to their plan. He did not fulfill their political expectations. Therefore, you're not the Messiah. Crucify the guy. So the lesson for us is obvious. Even the people who will be crying out 
Biblical words of worship may not be doing so from the correct heart. They speak Christianese, like I said, only to reject Christ when they realize there is no immediate glory. There is no immediate solution to their problems. There is no immediate expectation being fulfilled. We call these folks nominal Christians, nominal followers of Christ. I will follow Jesus as long as there's no such thing, church. We don't say that to God. We don't say, I'll follow you as long as. I will follow you, otherwise I will burn in hell. That is our perspective. Otherwise, there is no hope for me. When the world asks us, who is this that you represent and follow? We say, this is Jesus, the King of Kings. My Passover lamb, my prophet, my sympathetic high priest. He is my Lord and my Savior, my Prince of Peace, my greatest treasure, my shield, my shepherd, and my fortress, my deliverer, my stronghold, my inheritance, my reward, my life, and my friend who sticks closer than a brother. He is my salvation for whom I may suffer the loss of all things, but I count them as loss and rubbish that I may gain Christ. He is the lover of my soul of whom I am not ashamed. But we proclaim him continually. We must because he's the king of kings. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth with Grace.